let's pray before we dive into today's message. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, thank you. Just as we sang this morning, you are incredible. It's overwhelming to us, eternal God, um, that you made us, that you love us, and uh, despite our sin, um, which you know more fully than we do, um, how egregious our sin is, what, what great evil um, we commit, and often without even realizing it, because we're so self-absorbed. Um, but you love us so deeply, and you've cast, in Jesus, uh, our sin is cast as far away from us as the east is from the west. It just can't be measured. Um, your mercy is so much more, so much greater than our sin. And, and, and not just that you made us innocent, but you invite us to be friends, adopted sons and daughters. Uh, what a, this good news, this gospel message, uh, it is so incredible. And for the rest of not only our lives, but eternity, uh, we will be uh, worshiping and, and serving you with gladness and with gratitude uh, and, and deep, deep love that your spirit pours into our hearts. And so, um, thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you for this opportunity to gather today, study your word, and we pray that in our study, uh, we would see you, Jesus, in a way that touches us personally, in a way that changes us. So let's take a minute uh, to just be silent before God um, and, and, and bring your yes, bring your yes to God this morning. And on your, on your way to yes, acknowledge, acknowledge your hurriedness, acknowledge your sickness, acknowledge your fatigue, acknowledge whatever, your, your anxiety, whatever is going on inside of you. Uh, God can handle it. So let's be silent for a moment. King Jesus, we say yes to you. Would you speak to us, please? Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And then in the rest of his creating work, over the next six days, God formed and he filled. He said, let there be light, and there was light, forming day and night. There was evening and morning the first day. He said, let there be an expanse between the waters below and above, forming the sky and the atmosphere. 
and there was evening and morning the second day. He said, let the water under the sky be gathered, forming dry land and forming the seas. God saw that it was good, and he said, let the land produce vegetation, plants, trees, according to their kinds, bearing fruit according to their kinds. God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the third day. The world was formless and empty, and now there's established form in the first three days. And then in days four, five, and six, God starts filling what he formed. He said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. So he's filling the sky now with lights to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs and seasons for days and years. Let, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God filled the heavens with the sun, the moon, and the stars. God saw that it was good. Evening and morning, that was the fourth day. God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So now he's filling the seas and he's filling the skies. And God blessed all these creatures and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and morning, the fifth day. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. These are the ones who are in charge. He's, he's entrusting the rest of creation to mankind. So Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, God created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, you be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it, he didn't say to the others. Have dominion over the fish, over the birds, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I give you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth. Every tree with seed in its fruit, you have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work. There is no evening and morning in the seventh day, just FYI. So God created during the first six days, and you see this filling pattern that's been on the screen. First he formed it, then he filled it. This is back to Genesis 1 and 2, when the earth was formless and void. So it was, it was without form, and it was not filled. And then he formed and filled. And this is how God chooses to begin the greatest story ever told. So we're going to spend about half of our time this morning in Genesis 1 through 3, 
and then the rest of our time in 4 through 50. So um, it's a really important beginning. Uh, I'm going I'm to skip to Genesis 2, verse 15 through 17. This is right before the Lord created the woman, which is a more detailed account in chapter 2. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So God gave them this incredible space to develop and live in, to rule. But there is one rule in their ruling. Don't eat from this tree. If you eat of it, you'll die. And so we're going to read, um, or I'll read. I I invite you to stand if you're able for this reading of Genesis chapter 3. And then we'll cover the rest of the book. I think this is an incredibly important passage, and I'm sure you've heard it a ton, but it sets the plot for the rest of the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and 
for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which man was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thanks. You can be seated. So to summarize, humanity was exiled. They were kicked out and put under a curse. But God had compassion on them, clothing them, and built into the serpent's curse was humanity's hope. The plot of the biblical story is found in these first three chapters, which we just zoomed through. The plot is this. God wants to rule his world through relationship with us, with humanity. This is God's design. It's his intention. It's his heart. And then we see that we are the problem in this plan, that we broke trust, we broke relationship. And so in the solution, which is alluded to in the serpent's curse, that the solution is we need a new kind of human. We need a human who can crush our enemy, the serpent even while the enemy strikes our heel. And so this is the plot for the whole biblical story. And the rest of Genesis just deals with how's this solution going to come about? It's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a spiral downward, but it's not like a direct, you know, like nothing but bad happens. It's kind of like, you know, up and down all around. And we're wondering how is God going to bring about the solution for this problem. And you see in chapter four, when Cain kills his brother Abel, the death that God promised would happen, it actually happens physically for the first time by the hands of his very own brother. So God's warning was true physically that we would die once we sinned and ate that fruit that he told us not to eat. But that also spiritually, uh, we, we've, we've been separated from God and his presence in the garden. Then in chapter 5, we get our first genealogy, everyone's favorite part of reading the Bible, just name after name after name. But the genealogies are so important because with the curse that was given to uh, the serpent and, and the woman and the man, with, with those curses, there's this built-in hope that an offspring of the woman would become the serpent slayer. And so with this genealogy, we're kind of tracing that story. Who's the promised offspring who will crush the head of the serpent? In chapters 6 through 10, we get this famous story that if you ever went to Sunday school, you heard about Noah and the flood. That, That God's heart was grieved because he saw in humanity's heart that we only had evil inclinations to sin all the time. And so God set aside Noah and his family, and the rest of the earth was covered with, with water. And then you get a post-flood genealogy, again, highlighting the offspring, still looking for the promised seed. In chapter 11, we see that the flood didn't really, I mean, like, it, it didn't purify our hearts because there's enough humans to, like, gather together, and we're going to build this tower to show how great our name is. 
And God's like, no, this, this cannot happen. This, this is bad. This is evil, uh, just multiplying in the world. And so he scatters into different languages. And that's the Tower of Babel. And rather than humanity making their own name great through the Tower of Babel, God says, I'm going to choose one family, one unlikely family, and I'm going to make my name great through them. And that is the family of Abram, or as you know him, his name got changed to Abraham, the father of nations, except he and his wife couldn't have kids, of course. So God makes promises to Abraham that he would be a father of nations, even though they couldn't have kids, and that God would give them a land. God calls Abraham out, and he, he wanders and, and trusts God for these great promises. In chapter 26, we finally see uh, this, this promised child to Abraham and Sarah. We, we see Isaac, and he gets, he gets that much, uh, you know, like time on the screen or time on the page. Isaac's story in Genesis, you would expect so much more for the child of promise. But then it moves on to Jacob. And, and, and Jacob is, is, a, is a great picture of someone in the Bible who God chooses and God uses. But man, Jacob is really messed up. He's a deceiver. Uh, he runs from conflict time after time after time. But through the midst of it all, God is building and God's establishing his nation. Um, Jacob also is known as Israel after he wrestles with God. And one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, uh, has this incredible story where God gave him visions as the younger brother, uh, and, none of, and he gave him favor in, in his, his father's Jacob's eyes, but none of his brothers liked it, and so they sold him into slavery. Uh, his father thought he was dead, but ultimately God fulfills those visions and saves his people and blesses the world through Joseph's service in the house of the Egyptian king Pharaoh. So all that to say, the, the story of Genesis, we see that God is making promises and keeping promises that don't depend on the morality of the person involved. Doesn't depend on Abraham. It doesn't depend on Jacob. It doesn't depend on Joseph. But God is in control and he is keeping his promises. The people that God is interacting with, they have the opportunity to be changed as they trust God's promises. So let's go back through the outline of this book a little bit lower and slower. You see in chapters one and two, again, that humanity was designed to rule God's creation as stewards. But of course we failed. We, we read that. That makes us spiritually dead. And if you want to know how much that matters, just go to chapter four. When Cain cannot, he cannot master sin on his own. And he, he ends up being mastered by it, killing his brother Abel. So that, that's just the first picture we see of how bad off are we as sinners? Doesn't mean that everyone's a murderer, but as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we have murder in our hearts. And then we have the genealogy, we have the flood. And again, the, the question there is who will it be? Who's going to be the solution to this problem? By God's grace, his kind, undeserved activity, he moves through the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
and it's on those patriarchs that the story is built moving forward. So we can see Jesus throughout this book. And so here's just a few glimpses of Christ, a few examples. You have the child of promise that was promised to uh, Abraham and Sarah Ultimately, like you read Genesis and you think, oh, he's, the, he's the child of promise? What did he do in Genesis? He had, a little, he had some hardship with his neighbors uh, over some wells, some disputes over wells. And he has this great story about how he met his wife. That's all you get about the child of promise. And then he's got conflict in his family, you know, with Jacob stealing Esau's blessing. That's all you get. The child of promise is not the child of promise. He's not the serpent slayer. You're left wanting more. And ultimately, Jesus is the promised seed. He's the promised child that will come and solve this problem. You also see the savior of Genesis, the way the story ends. Joseph, man, he's an incredible savior of God's people the Israelites, that, that family, you know, he blessed Egypt and he blessed his family because God gave him that vision and, and he, he executed it once he was promoted to that, that seat, second in charge next to Pharaoh. So Joseph is kind of the savior of the story, but uh, he's just a shadow. He's just an image of Jesus, the savior to come. And as, as Jacob or Israel, as he's dying, he's, he's blessing all of his sons. And Genesis chapter 49 gives us a hint of the ultimate savior who's coming. And, and, and Jacob says that he's going to come from the line of Judah. So look, look at Genesis 49. This is Jacob blessing his sons. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? You don't want to mess with a lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So it's this promise. In this blessing, there's a promise for the coming Messiah who ultimately, of course, is Jesus. So if we, if we summarize the story's plot, that God wants to rule his world through relationship with humans, that humans are the problem, and that the solution is we need a new kind of human, we see that Jesus, in Romans 5, Paul says that Jesus is the new Adam. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, He's actually a new creation. So Jesus, of course, he is the solution. And in him, we become the new humanity. Jesus is the one who fulfills Genesis 3, the long-awaited offspring of woman who was struck by the snake when he died on the cross, but ultimately overcame and crushed the snake's head in his resurrection from the dead. And so what's, what's our response? to repent and to trust Jesus. I know for all, for all those stories in there, it's back to the basics. 
change your mind. That's what repent means. Rethink what you thought and place your confidence in Jesus. If you haven't done that today, uh, talk to me or talk to someone here if, if you're ready and you're wanting to take that step. And if you have chosen to trust Christ with your life, chosen to follow him, uh, this is just one expression of your ongoing repentance and faith. That, that's, it's like breathing. It's, it's our life now. The role, your role, my role in this world can still be found in Genesis 1.28. Some theologians call this the cultural mandate. This is where God blessed humanity and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over everything. And so we, we believe that all scripture is from God and is useful for equipping us for every good work. So one very useful application of the book of Genesis is that God's design for humanity to run his world in partnership with him is it, still going on. As you operate in business or as you uh, are called to be a stay-at-home mom during this season of life, as you teach, this is, this is God running his world through your life and inviting you into partnership with him. Of course, in our sin, that, that partnership was broken, but in Jesus, the partnership has been restored. So we're not going to fix the world. Our hope is not in our own efforts, but we can be faithful and trust that Jesus ultimately will make all things right, but in the process, he's using us right now. And so just like Rusty talked about last week, we don't have to sit back and play defense and think, oh, we can't do that, we can't do that. But it's time to go play offense. Partner with Jesus in the midst of your ordinary everyday life. Share the gospel. Pray for the people around you. As you're doing mundane, I don't know, accounting. Accounting sounds mundane to me. But as you're doing mundane, ordinary work, that is where God's placed you. You're blessing people by doing taxes right. You're blessing people by getting numbers right. You're telling the truth. You're living with integrity. And ultimately, you're serving. You're serving people. You're, you're playing a role in God's creation. And as we play our role, we get to create culture. Culture is just the way that people live their lives. Whether you follow Jesus or not, all of us are creating a culture. How you, li- uh, how, how you celebrate holidays, what kind of food you eat, what kind of music you listen to. And so this work of creating culture, it, it, it happens in every single one of our lives. The life of your family, how you manage your home, what you do for recreation, what renews you. Are you a happy person? <laughs> your work, like I talked about before. And so we all have opportunity to partner with God in the midst of our everyday life. And that's what he designed us for originally. In Jesus, we have this opportunity again. We're not going to get it perfect, but the Christian life is not about perfection. It's about direction. So just think this morning about how, what kind of culture you're creating and how you're creating it. The Tower of Babel was an attempt at creating culture. It was based on pride. 
That was what underlied that culture. What underlies the culture of God's kingdom is faith and humility. So we are made to rule the world with him, and we will. Look at how the story ends. Revelation 22. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, this new Jerusalem. So, sorry, I can't even finish. The garden was undeveloped. We were placed there to develop it. What is a city? It's a developed space. Okay, so, so it went from undeveloped to developed. Um, the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, will be in this developed space with God, and we will serve him. We will see his face. Any who belong to him as his servants will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not be the need of a light, the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Ruling the new creation. In the beginning, God created all things and he blessed it. He said it was good. To bless something means to, to make it good, to, to make it glad. It was all very good. Because of our sin, the curse happened, but because of Jesus, the curse is defeated and the curse will be no more. We will see God's face and reign with him forever and ever. So let's pray. God, this is an incredible story. And sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to uh, wake up Monday morning or in the middle of the work week on Wednesday to remember um, this is the true story. This is reality. But Jesus, one of the incredible aspects of your ministry is you are God with us, Emmanuel. And so would you teach us how to live now in your already present kingdom? We know it's not yet fully there like we just read in Revelation 22. But we long for that day and we want to more and more do our work in this world with you. We praise you that it's possible because of your work and what you've accomplished, your grace in our lives. Ask God's spirit to speak to you about what he's calling you to be faithful with. Ask him, what specifically does faithfulness look like in this season of life or even this week?